We're in Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, today's passage uh, is not one of those passages that I would necessarily pick if I had the choice uh, to preach on. But the benefit of going through an entire book in the Bible is uh, it's just that. You land on the passages you might be inclined to skip over. I think today's passage is definitely one of those passages you will not find and, you know, if you go on Instagram, you find those sort of Bible, like, word art calligraphy accounts. Uh, you will not find a very fancy handwriting saying, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, like in cursive. <laughs> or, or those, you know, quiet time devotional accounts with, like, the Bible open, right? And then there's a cup of latte right next to it. And the passage that's opened usually is not, right? or you'll be thrown into the unquenching fire, right? Um, we tend to avoid these passages, and we really shouldn't. I, I really shouldn't as, the, as a minister. Uh, as, as, as the Bible commands us, we should teach and preach the whole counsel of God, and so that's one of the benefits of going through an entire book. And you know, whether you're a Christian or agnostic or skeptic, wherever you are on that spectrum, chances are there, there are parts of this passage that bother you, there are parts of this passage that offend you. Um, and, and I just want to open with a short sort of prefatory remark on that uh, before we dive into this very important passage, which is this, uh, there's, that there's actually something quite encouraging and reassuring uh, about this very fact uh, that when we come across something about God in the Bible that doesn't align with our preferences or our cultural norms um, or our political correctness, whatever it is, that's actually a good thing. How is that a good thing? Think about the alternative. What if there was absolutely nothing in the Bible that you found troubling or offensive or challenging to your current outlook? and your current worldview. It doesn't correct you on anything. It doesn't disagree with you on any issue. Somehow, everything in the Bible aligns perfectly with your personal convictions and personal uh, preferences. If that were the case, I would submit to you, you have a bigger problem on your hands. Because in that case, God, as it were, is just a figment of your own imagination. 
a product of your own culture and of your own time period, right? It fits right into your context, your cultural and temporal context. Whereas, if Christianity does have elements of it that are challenging to you or even contradicting your presuppositions, preconceived notions, doesn't that at least appear to be consistent with what you might expect from a timelessly true belief? That it will not be confined to your time, you know, namely summer of 2019. And, and actually, we shouldn't even lump the, the whole world in this current period of time into one entity either because the way Westerners think and Easterners think, are, they vary, right? So just to give you one example, uh, my grandmother, who's in her 80s now, uh, lived through the years of Japanese occupation, right? When she was very young. Um, and she has very like vivid stories, memories of some really terrible things that happened during that time. For her, even as a Christian, the challenging part of the Bible isn't hell. It's heaven. Uh, it's not God's judgment that bothers her. Uh, it, it's God's grace and forgiveness. See, the, the challenge for her is different. It, it isn't how can a good God send people to hell, but it's how can a just God let sinful people into heaven? The point being, we need to acknowledge that our objections to the Bible are very much confined to our culture and our time. It's relative and subjective and not objective. And we need to have the humility to admit that instead of going to the Bible with all of our cultural baggage and saying the Bible better agree with all of that and, and cater to all of that. Because truth, if it's really true, would transcend our time and our culture and our personal preferences. So, in a strange way, I think we can be thankful for this very serious passage that warns us of the seriousness of temptation, of sin, and hell, uh, which is what we'll unpack. Because what Jesus is teaching here is just that, the seriousness of temptation, the seriousness of sin, and consequently hell. And, and there's a good news behind all of this as well that we can seriously hope in and that is the gospel. The, the gospel gives us a serious way in dealing with sin and temptation and consequently hell. So with that prefatory remark, uh, let's dive into this passage and let's be open to receive from this timeless truth of God's word. So first, let's talk about the seriousness of temptation uh, here in this passage. Verse 42 says this, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Uh, the, the key word here is um, causes, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. And what that word implies is there this, there's this causal relationship um, and communal sort of dimension to sin. There's a way in which we can be influenced by others to sin and influence others to sin as well. Sin is causal, it's relational. 
It's not simply an individual sort of private matter. What you do individually will influence how you inter interact relationally uh, with others. I think Psalm 1 makes this pretty clear too. You're, you're probably familiar with the first two verses of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and, day and night. So the Psalms open with this advice about how you shouldn't walk with the wicked, stand with sinners, and sit with scoffers. Meaning, who you hang around matters. Who you befriend matters. Their relationship that can be conducive to righteousness, their relationship that can be conducive to wickedness. It depends on who you surround yourself with. Now, uh, we should remember what Jesus also said not too long ago in Mark chapter 7, right, where he said sin ultimately is something that comes from within our hearts. It's not just something that gets sort of deposited from the outside. It's not just a, a, an evil person or an influence that deposits sin into us. It, it's, it stems from the heart. What Jesus is talking about here is the way in which our relationship can either help us resist temptation better or intensify our temptation to sin. So the, the application there is pretty, pretty simple. You know, think about your relationships. Are you living in a greater measure of holiness because of those relationships? Or are those relationships causing you to sin? Um, can you be grateful to God for your relationships and hold fast to them? Or do you need to pray that God would change things about this relationship, reform this, these relationships, and, or even, when necessary, distance yourself from these relationships. And, and more importantly, given that this is saying to the one who causes those who believe to sin, right? because he says it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, given that emphasis on the one who causes someone to sin, we have to consider whether we are in any way causing the people around us to sin as well. Think of your role in your relationships and ask yourself, do I, cause, do I cause others to gossip because of my gossiping? Do I cause others to become greedy and envious and discontent by talking about my constant materialism? Do I influence others to be unforgiving by speaking unkindly about someone? Do I influence others to, to lust or cross physical boundaries by the way I behave or speak? Do I influence others to be gluttonous or be prone to drunkenness by what I eat or drink? Or do I influence others to become anxious, overly anxious by my worrisome speech? We have to discern these things for ourselves because we are communal beings. We're relational beings that, that influence one another. We have to be careful not to cause our brothers and sisters to sin. And that will be, as we heard in the membership file, that will be studying diligently the purity and the peace of the church. Preserving the peace and purity of the church. And the heart of Christ behind this is found in this expression, these little ones. These little ones who believe in me. Okay? That's the same thing as saying, these little children of mine, uh, the, my dearest ones, or my beloved ones. 
It's his way of identifying his people as his beloved. And it is out of that love, out of that love for his people that he says what he says. It's out of his love for his people that he expresses this strong aversion, hatred for sin. So, so the two are the, the two sides of the same coin. Um, you would, if you, if you truly love someone dearly, you would hate anything that threatens that person's life, right? You would much rather have that threat be sunk into the bottom of the ocean with a giant stone hung around him, right? That is how much Jesus hates sin and those who tempt, those who tempt his people into sinning. So there's a seriousness of temptation. And then he goes into the second point, which is a seriousness of sin itself. The responsibility, right, is not just on the one who causes others to sin or causes us to sin. The primary emphasis here is on those who actually commit the sin. Meaning you can't quite just simply point the finger and say, they made me do it. Kind of like what Adam said about Eve. She made me do it. Jesus changes, he shifts gears now, and he goes from the subject whoever in verse 42 to the subject you, starting from verse 43 and on, all the way through 47. Now it's about you. Let's look at you. And if your hand causes you to sin, your hand causes you to sin, it is better for you to cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, and so on and so forth, right? So in the, in the previous verse, if Jesus was pointing to sort of this communal, relational dimension, to sin. Here, Jesus is pointing to what one theologian named Derek Thomas, what he calls the physical dimension of sin. A physical dimension of sin, which is basically saying sin does involve our hands and our feet and our eyes, our five senses. There's a physical dimension to it. Sin is not just an abstract reality, but it's a tangible reality. Okay? And, and so is holiness. It ought to be. It can only be inevitably, naturally be physically demonstrated. Of course, not everything spiritual is physical in that sense, but our holiness should have that physical dimension to it. Calvin put it like this. He said, the eyes and hands are obedient to the mind because they have no movement of their own. They simply obey what the mind commands them to do. So if the mind is pure, then the eyes and hands would be obedient to that. But if the mind is impure, then so would be the body. But see, he's saying the mind and the body go together. The, the, the heart, right, is what causes us to behave in a certain way. It's what's on the inside that comes out on the outside. But it's certainly on the outside. It's certainly physical, demonstrable. It's tangible and physical. So that means our faith our holiness is not just a reality to be mindful about, something for us to be aware of mentally. It's, re it's a reality to be physically demonstrated as well. It's almost as if, if, it's, if it totally lacks a physical dimension, if your holiness lacks a physical dimension, it's, it's not real, it's not, it's not there, because if it was there, if it really was there, there would be a physical dimension to your holiness. And I remember Francis Chan giving this illustration. He says, when I tell my daughter, 
go clean your room. She knows better than to come back a couple of hours later and say, hey dad, I memorized what you said. I, I studied what you said really hard. I can actually say what you said in the Greek. And you know what, I'm gonna get my friends together at our place and we're gonna study. I'm gonna study all day about what you said and not actually clean her room. She knows better than that. She knows when, when daddy says, go clean your room, there ought to be this physical act of going and cleaning the room. That's what, that's what really represents this true relationship between a father and a daughter. So why do Christians think this will fly with God? That this kind of thinking and talk is going to go with Jesus. Jesus would look at people and say this, why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you to do? Why do you call me Lord if you're not going to do what I'm commanding you to do? And this is why it's so essential we're not merely, that we're not merely mindful of what God has spoken we got to get physical. Bring it into the physical dimension. Bring it to your hands, your feet, your eyes. But if you're only bringing sin into the physical dimension, Jesus says, cut it out. When we're giving our members away to, to sin rather than holiness, he says, it's better to cut it off. Now, Jesus is not saying you need to literally cut off your hands and your feet and tear out your eyes. It's a hyperbolic, symbolic figure of speech. And we know this because, again, of what Jesus said in Mark 7. The root of sin is not your, your, your fingertips and, and your eyes. It's your heart. The point here is that, the very, that this very real presence of sin should so disturb us and threaten us that we would seek to part from it at all costs. And as the metaphor itself suggests, even at a cost that's painful, that could feel like an amputation. Uh, this, this reminds me of one of the most memorable scenes for me uh, from, from The Walking Dead, um, where uh, there's a scene when Herschel, that's the old guy, he gets bitten by a zombie in the leg. And, and then Rick, the leader, um, even as they're on the run, and there's, a, there's like a crowd of zombies coming after them, even as they're on the run, finds a corner to hide and uh, pauses everything, takes an axe, okay, immediately proceeds to amputate Herschel's leg. And, and what's Herschel doing? Stop it! No, right? He's like, uh, yeah, right? He lets him do it. No one's stopping Rick from amputating his life. Why not? Because they understand the seriousness of the situation, right? It's either Herschel parts way with his leg and lives, or he keeps the leg and dies. His life is at stake, right? This is similar. Jesus is saying something similar. Sin, the sin that is keeping you from living a holy and righteous life that's pleasing to God, whatever that sin is, you have to be willing to part ways with it, even, even at drastic measures. At, at, at a great cost to you. Because your eternal life is at stake. You've got to be willing to make any sacrifice, suffer any loss for the sake of gaining eternal life. And, and if you don't have that urgency, then you do not understand the seriousness of sin. 
It's kind of like if you, if you see a fire breaking out, let's say in your living room, on your couch, um, which is totally possible when you have children, uh, you wouldn't sit back calmly and say, well, it's not like the whole house is on fire, right? Um, let me check back on that tomorrow. Like you, you will not procrastinate, put off putting that fire out. Why? Because you know the seriousness of it. You know if you leave that alone, eventually it'll burn up the whole house. You'll be engulfed in fire, and that's hell. The final eventual consequence of unchecked sin. When sin has had its, had its fruition, so to speak. If you're not actively cutting off sin in your life, and, and by actively, I mean actively, not necessarily successfully and perfectly, actively. If you're not actively trying to cut off sin in your life, then in Jesus' own words, you will be cast into the eternal fire. And if we find that language too strong, or perhaps even offenses, I will submit to you, one, again, this is that's probably because this is true and not a product of our own culture and imaginations. And two, I would also submit to you that it's because we do not see the greater offensiveness and that is our own sinfulness. We're, offended, we're more offended by the consequence of the punishment upon sin than sin itself. We're not seeing sin as Jesus sees sin or as Rick sees the zombie virus. We don't really understand the seriousness of it. It's deadly serious. And it warrants not only our mindfulness of its seriousness, but our activeness in cutting it out at the physical level with what we do with our hands, where we go with our feet, what we look upon with our eyes. Change has to happen there. It demands action, not just contemplation, not just meditation. You're probably feeling, you know, some conviction at, at this point, you know, when you hear this. I hope. Some, some conviction, some voice telling you, I, I really should stop doing that with my hands. I really should stop going there with my feet. I really should stop looking at those things with my eyes. Don't silence that voice. The voice of the Holy Spirit convicting you of your sins. Cut off your sins. Don't let that little fire burn your whole house down. Put sin to that. That's John Owen put it. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or else sin will be killing you. Understand the seriousness of sin. That is why Jesus, he pulls no punches. He, he cuts straight to the chase. He speaks to us like, like grown-ups doesn't give us empty praises, doesn't give us flattery, gives us the truth, right? Like a good physician should. You know, imagine you're going to the doctor one day and the doctor sits you down and says, hey, John, yeah, we got your results and it's, it's really serious. It's pretty bad. But let's look out this window. What a beautiful day. Let's just think about that. Let's not think about anything negative, you know, let's not be depressing here. Let's just look at this bright sunny sky and think, think positive thoughts, positive thoughts. I would be like, heck no, that's not why I'm here. Tell me the truth. Tell me what's actually going on. Lay it on me, right? 
Jesus is laying it on us. The seriousness of sin. Without sugarcoating. That's what this is. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Satan likes to kiss up to us and flatter us and give us positivity, positivity, positivity. Jesus is the faithful friend who would be willing to wound us if that's what it takes for us to receive the truth. Now let me close with this last point and that is how we can go about killing sin. How do we defeat sin and temptation? Uh, Where do we get this power? And I mentioned this in the beginning, the power to deal seriously with sin is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is what the saltiness in us means. Faith in Jesus Christ and the gospel and the good news that he has proclaimed, which, right, ironically includes within it these depressing elements about him dying and being crucified. You see, both the the Old and the New Testament tell us that the Messiah is to take upon himself the punishment of sin on behalf of his people who are initially headed towards death and consequently hell, but there's a Savior who's going to come, sent by God, who's going to save us by taking upon himself the punishment of an eternal hell. And that is the good news. This Christ is going to come and be crucified, be put to death and be crucified for his people. Now, how is that good? How is that good news for us? Here's how this is good. If there is this judgment that I deserve and this this suffering and eternal hell that I deserve, that is this everlasting pain and undying, um, never dying fire, then that's mean that, that, that in order for God to really truly love me and save me, he would have to come down and reach me where I'm at. If the grave is where I'm headed, that's where I should find Jesus. If, if hell is where I'm headed, that's where Jesus would go to save me. And he has. Christ died, and he was crucified, and he was buried. And that must mean that the love of God that saves me from eternal judgment is itself. His love itself is eternal, everlasting, never dying. Because that's just what the crucifixion proves to us. Proves to the extent, the extent to which he will go to love me, love you, give himself for us. So you see, the doctrine of hell actually highlights for us the beauty of the doctrine of grace. It is, as it were, the depths of hell that points us to the depths of God's love for us. And there is where we find the power we need against sin and temptation. It's by growing in our hearts affections for the Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. And because of our love for him, we grow in our resolve and our strength to resist sin and temptation that tear us away from him. Remember what Brian Chappell said? Why do we sin? Why do we sin? Because we love it. Because we love it. Then how do we defeat sin? You need a greater love. 
You need a greater love to push out the lesser love. It's not by focusing on resisting sin. It's not by focusing on the guilt that you get from sinning. But it's focusing on what you love more than all of your sins. And that, for every Christian believer, is the Christ, the Son of God, who defeated every sin, who died for sinners, who put death to death, and who rose again to give us life. The power is in beholding Him. Beholding Him and Him crucified every single day. Him being on the forefront of your mind every single day. Him being worshipped in your life every single day. Him being obeyed at, at the physical level, in the physical dimension, with your hands, with your feet, with your eyes, every single day. And in your repenting when you fail to obey Him every single day. There's no way around this. This is the power against sin and temptation. It is the power of Christ and Him crucified. He came down. He descended into hell for us. He was there, even there, to meet us and to save us and to get us out. And He has. So we ought to trust in Him. We ought to give Him all of our worship and all of our lives, all of our obedience. And even when we fail, even when we fail, keep in mind, He has won. He is victorious. He has defeated sin and death and has saved us from hell. And we can always return to Him. We can always go back to Him and find mercy and love at the cross. These words are familiar to us. We sing these words regularly. And I hope when we bring these words, when we, when we sing it with our lips, bring it out into the physical dimension, we're not uttering it with an empty heart but truly confessing when we sing, no guilt in life, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Let's sing that, bring that into our physical world like we actually believe it. And let's taste the power of Christ. Let's see the saltiness of Christ visibly, tangibly in our lives. Let's pray. Father God, we ask uh, your help to receive this word um, with an obedient heart. Um, may we not be offended by your truth but find our hearts bowing towards it, submitting to it, surrendering before it, knowing, Lord, this is your act of friendship to give us the truth, and, and it is your intention to deliver us from all the, the seriousness of sin, temptation, and consequently hell, and you have done it. You have, you have given us, bought us, secured us the victory through your Son, Jesus Christ, and Lord, help us to look to Him for the power not ourselves, not our, not our record, not our performance, not how we feel, but the power of Christ, He who died and was crucified for the sake of those who were meant to die and be crucified. May we put our trust in Him, put our hope in Him, and fix our eyes upon Him, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.